Welcome to the show, y'all. Welcome to the show. Um, There is a lot to talk about, and we will jump into the stories shortly. We have President Trump threatening to deploy federal troops um, in a bunch of U.S. cities. That's pretty scary. We got new anti-Biden ads from Trump. We're going to talk a little bit about Ben Shapiro today, Sean Hannity, and Tucker Carlson kind of awkwardly going at it a little bit. Uh, Democrats just bending over and letting the Republicans have their way with them in Washington. There's a lot to discuss there. Um, And then we also have Representative Ted Yoho, that name will never not be funny, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Having a little incident, to say the least, so we'll discuss that, and then Twitter bans QAnon. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world, guys, that's all I have to say, but um, we'll start with something that we've been talking about a lot recently, because it's gigantic news to us, especially in this community. Here we go. 2020 is certainly one of the worst years in my life, and I'm sure in many of your guys' lives, um, it's terrible. So we're all still reeling from the sudden and unexpected death of Michael Brooks. There's, uh, you know, there were shockwaves that went through the entire lefty political commentator world, but just left circles in general. Um, Now, I want to do something to honor Michael Brooks' legacy. I'll discuss that uh, a little more as, you know, as I ramble on here. And forgive me for being all over the place, but, you know, these are not the easiest things in the world uh, to discuss. 
Um, now, Corn and I on our podcast yesterday, we discussed um, Michael Brooks quite a bit. I told some stories as to, um, you know, the times that I had hung out with him, spoke a little bit about him personally, spoke a little bit about, you know, life in general in the wake of a tragedy like this. How do you put things in context and perspective? How do you get your mind around stuff like this? So we touched on all that stuff um, in the podcast. And, you know, this is stuff, how much more of this can we take with tragedy after tragedy? And, you know, 2020, we almost, Trump almost started World War III by assassinating a top Iranian general. Kobe Bryant died. Um, Obviously, you have, the depression that we have now. We have COVID-19 and the pandemic that's taken 144,000 lives as of the recording of this segment. You have Bernie's campaign being just totally obliterated at the last moment when the establishment threw a Hail Mary pass and it worked. Just so much, just repeatedly, we've been slapped in the face and had our eyes spit in. And, you know, I'm reminded of an old saying that I heard once, and I actually thought it was pretty poignant, even though it sounds a little silly. Uh, But somebody once said, if things are going good, don't worry, they're going to go bad. If things are going bad, don't worry, they're going to go good. And that's just, you know, a pithy way of trying to say that this is life, man, and and (laughs) – We're all on the ride together, and we're going to have our ups, we're going to have our downs, and right now we just happen to be in a period of a prolonged downturn. And something like this hitting very close to home is perhaps as devastating a feeling as it can possibly get. Now, uh, Michael and I, ideologically, we were 85 to 90% in agreement. I mean, his ideology and my ideology, it's very similar, but where we disagreed with each other, it was genuinely interesting and fruitful. And that's really all you can ask for in this world. I don't want everybody out there to be a clone of me and all of my beliefs and ideas. That wouldn't be fun or interesting at all. And Michael, while we had so many areas of strong agreement, wherever we disagreed, that was the most fun. That was the most interesting. And you never got a sense from him that he was, you know, when he disagreed with you, he was condescending, he was looking down on you, he, um, he felt superior. No, he really wanted to, like, dive into the discussion and, and arguments and dissect them and try to understand your viewpoint before he responds to it. And most importantly, when you spoke to him, you knew immediately this is a guy who has thought about this stuff quite a bit. Like, this isn't a guy who's just shooting from the hip here with the first thing that pops in his mind when talking about an issue. Whatever the issue may be, he's read about it, he's contemplated it, and he has, like, a very well-thought-out position on it. And um, he would classify, you know, his beliefs and what he's fighting for as a sort of uh, international socialist vision. And Michael was crystal clear that he believed that working people in Brazil, in Peru, in New Zealand, in Russia, in China, 
working people everywhere have a connection and share a common humanity. And in some ways, his obsession with focusing on people all over the world, that really is a sign that he's more optimistic than most people I know because he dares to dream big to create, you know, this massive world-encompassing vision where we all move forward together. And also, it's one of the most humanist perspectives I could think of to really have that same level of concern with like a worker in Cambodia. That's honestly, that's unique and special, even in left wing circles. So, you know, the areas where we disagree, Michael and I, I always felt like those disagreements actually stemmed from him being a more optimistic and perhaps a more optimistic person than me and having a bigger vision than me. So, like, for example, you know, he he thought that there was a long-term goal of getting away from having borders and creating a truly, truly global community. And I, I don't necessarily agree with that because I, I think we need borders just for the sake of organization, and I don't think that they're inherently – evil, wrong, bad, bigoted, or anything like that. Um, but at its core, I think the reason why I'm not, I don't have as grand a vision as he does is because I just have a little bit more pessimistic view of human nature than he does. But that's the point. The point is, I think Michael had this belief, among others, because he really does see the good in everybody. And so he permits himself that ability to have that grand, world-encompassing vision for a sort of international socialist utopia in the future because that goodness that he sees in everybody else, first and foremost, it's reflected in him because he truly is a guy who would give you the shirt off his back and would absolutely help you in a moment of need. And in some ways, I do think that perhaps, you know, the ideological disagreements him and I do have and did have, it really did stem from him perhaps just being a more open person than me, a better person than me, a more outgoing and accepting person than I am. You know, I'm definitely more guarded. I'm definitely a little more pessimistic than optimistic in some ways. And those really amazing things about human beings and human nature, he had them in him, which allowed him to see it in everybody else. So I think that um, I don't want this, his ideology, his philosophy, his legacy to just slowly but surely erode. So what I want to do um, to honor his vision, at the very least do my part to try to keep his message alive and get it out there, um, is I want to re-upload a lot of my favorite talks with him. Um, so I had been on his show a number of times, um, and like I said, I really enjoyed our 
conversations because where we disagreed, it was always productive and fruitful and interesting. Um, so I do want to, you know, re-upload a lot of the talks I had with him over the coming week or so. And I hope you guys will watch and, um, you know, really take note of his perspective and his ideology. Because, again, wherever him and I do disagree, I think the core of it stems from him being more optimistic about human beings in general than me. You know, I, I think he would say that he is. He does have a 100% post-capitalism ideology. Um, whereas me, I have elements of a post-capitalist philosophy in my ideology, but it's just little elements here and there. I'm not truly overall post-capitalist because perhaps I think that, you know, there are limits to how well organized we could be and how far we can get. And I'm more of an empiricist than anything else. So I see something like social democracy functioning wonderfully in, in Scandinavia. And I say, hey, that, like, let's aim for that. He was... He had a grander vision than that, and he had more hope than that, and he perhaps had more foresight than that. And, and he believes in the Chomsky vision of freedom as a human tendency. So we're always going to strive for more freedom and to create a better world. And if that's the case, and we really can go further than we've already gone, well, then, of course, I'd be wrong, and social democracy is not nearly the the best we could hope for, we can go beyond that. And, and Michael has that grander vision and that all-encompassing philosophy and that hope and optimism for the future, um, which is something that he elucidated brilliantly, and I don't want that to go away. And I think that if you talk to Michael, he would say, it's not about me. He would say that. He would say, listen, it's not about me. It's about these issues, and it's about improving the world for people, and it's about building institutions that will last and will endure and will provide people with the material well-being that they need and will empower workers moving forward. So, you know, even where we disagree – to me, I just find it interesting and fruitful, and I do not want his perspective, his ideology, his unique perspective and ideology, and thoughtful perspective and ideology, I don't want that to just go away. So I want to do whatever I can to you know, help that move forward and maybe inspire the next Michael Brooks. Because again, I really do think Michael would say, hey man, it's not really about me. It's about this vision, this ideology, the kind of future we can create. And um, so I want to, you know, re-upload some of uh, my favorite talks with him on the channel. And, you know, also, I, I will probably try to take some of the things that he was most proud of and feature them as well and maybe comment on them myself. Because, you know, the one little piece of solace that we have is that it is true that he did kind of check a lot of the important things off of his bucket list recently whether it's interviewing Adolf Reed, interviewing Noam Chomsky, interviewing Cornell West, interviewing Lula. I mean, he wouldn't have believed it had you told him that, hey, man, when you're gone, Lula is going to be a Michael Brooks bro, and he's going to tweet about you quite a bit. And the entire Brazilian left has come together to honor Michael because they know how much Michael cared for them and how much Michael cared for working people. 
And um, even though this is a really sad moment, that was a very beautiful thing to see. I don't think he knew how much he meant to so many people. And to see the giant outpouring of support really was incredible to me. And I'll tell you what, there are a lot of rifts and and factions on the left, and we're not always united. And sometimes we're at each other's throats. But you know what? We're more united than I've ever seen in my life when it came to the reaction to this terrible tragedy that broke all of our hearts. And um, he was able to unite the left. He was able to get a tremendous outpouring of support for him and his message. And I think he would be proud of that. And again, I also think he would say, it's not about me. It's about we have to move forward and work to implement this vision. And so we can't let that go away. So I want to do whatever I can to try to aid in that. And again, I'll be re-uploading some of my favorite talks with him, um, as well as featuring some of the work that he would probably be most proud of himself that he did. And um, none of us can or should let his memory and his ideology die. Even though it hurts, we move forward and do the best that we can to honor his legacy by pushing for these same things. Okay. Now let's jump into some of the stories. We have President Trump. This is going to be ugly, of course, because it's Trump, but let's do it. President Trump is threatening to deploy federal troops in major cities throughout the U.S. Take a look at this. And then the police are afraid to do anything. I know New York very well. I know the police very well. New York's finest. And the fact is, they're restricted from doing anything. They can't do anything. Well, I'm going to do something that I can tell you. Because we're not going to let New York and Chicago and Philadelphia, Detroit and Baltimore and all of these. Oakland is a mess. We're not going to let this happen in our country. All run by liberal Democrats. Federal law enforcement to some of these cities. More federal law enforcement that I can tell you. In Portland, they've done a fantastic job. They've been there three days, and they really have done a fantastic job in a very short period of time. No problem. They grab them. A lot of people in jail. They're leaders. These are anarchists. These are not protesters. People say protesters. These people are anarchists. These are people that hate our country. And we're not going to let it go forward. And I'll tell you what, the governor and the mayor and the senators out there, they're afraid of these people. That's the reason they don't want us to help them. They're afraid. I really believe they're actually maybe even physically afraid of these people. So the president of the United States is threatening to deploy federal agents into cities when those cities do not want that to happen. Yeah. That's not authoritarian. I don't know what is. The federal government deploying federal agents, oftentimes, you know, you can't tell what agency they're from. This is what was happening in Portland. They were just snatching peaceful protesters off the streets. He's threatening to do this 
in every major city. Okay, are there even riots like there were in the immediate aftermath of the George Floyd killing these days? Maybe a handful here and there, but by and large, it's mostly just protests now. And it's certainly something that's within the purview of the state and local governments that they could take care of and they have the ability to take care of. And also, that's people's First Amendment rights as long as they're not, you know, doing violence, then what's the problem? Guys, he's more focused on this, quelling the remnants of protests with federal agents than he is controlling coronavirus. Like the whole idea here is that, oh my God, there's no law and order and the streets are dangerous as a result of this. The streets are dangerous because of COVID-19. 144,000 Americans are dead because of COVID-19. Millions have had it and have long-lasting symptoms and effects that are really devastating. Hospitals in some places now are totally overrun. There's been a total lack of leadership at the federal level, and he's basically delegated all this stuff to the states when this is something that is within the purview of the federal government. And then when it comes to other things, like protests, where the state and local governments, they can handle that. He says, no, I'm going to send in federal agents. Look at how he rushes to get more involved to play Mr. Macho Man, tough guy, law and order. But then when he's needed, when it comes to coronavirus, when we need all the federal government's resources, he was late and he's still making the wrong decisions. And he's like, I blame the governors. I blame the governors. Listen, nobody wants your unaccountable federal agents in these cities, and we know exactly how this will play out if he does deploy them. It's going to be exactly like Portland, where now you've got a bunch of lawsuits coming in because, again, you had Department of Homeland Security agents dressed in camouflage, some people from the Border Patrol arresting protesters, chaining them up, saying they're being charged with a crime, then releasing them. These people don't have the authority to do the things that they're doing here. And this is a a complete violation of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. This guy one day goes out there and cries about cancel culture and says how much he loves free speech. And the next day he says, I want to ban flag burning with a year in jail. That's deeply anti-free speech. And I want to put people in prison for 10 years for defacing a monument or a statue or things of that nature. So Mr. Tough Guy Law and Order, he hates the protests so much, he wants to, you know, destroy the Constitution, destroy the First Amendment, send out his federal thugs to take care of it, all at the same time as we have an economic depression and a pandemic still ripping through the country. His priorities are all out of whack. They're all messed up. He gets a steady diet of Fox News and One American News Network, so he has no clue whether he's coming or going. He doesn't know his ass from his elbow. He doesn't know how to lead. He doesn't know how to do any of this stuff. So he defaults to an authoritarian tendency. That's what we're seeing here. Keep your federal troops out of the cities. And for the love of God, acknowledge that if you get beaten in the election, you're stepping down. Because this shit is getting scary. He he keeps flirting with these just outright authoritarian crackdowns. Insurrection Act. You know? Federal agents that are, you know, you don't even know which agency they're from being deployed in the streets. Oh, all the polls are fake news, and I'm definitely up, you know, in the election. 
all these things, all these signs. And the scary thought is, yes, what happens if, you know, the election comes, he gets defeated, and he's like, I think it's fake news. I don't believe it. And um, if you disagree, I don't care. I'm deploying my federal thugs to keep me in power. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, Jesus Christ. I really hope this doesn't happen, guys. I'm not saying what the likelihood is of it happening. I'm just saying I really hope it doesn't happen. Because it's always with him, Trump, it's always like you see the groundwork. You see the little hints dropped here and there. And it's just a terrifying thing. For the love of God, focus more on coronavirus. Focus on ending the depression and getting people stimulus checks. And this is what you have to do. He's not going to do that. He doesn't care about that. He plays macho man tough guy because he thinks it will help him more in the polls. But you'll see. He'll just go down even more because nobody wants this. Nobody wants the, the fear of an authoritarian crackdown of their country officially becoming a police state. Nobody wants that. So here he goes. Here he goes again, and it's going to hurt him yet again in the polls. And what a terrifying moment in U.S. history this is. All right, next. Trump is now out with a third ad hitting Joe Biden on law and order stuff. Take a look. Is this not working? Motherfucker. All right, hold on. Got to pull this up the hard way. Give me a second, y'all. I'm going to find this shit. Okay. All right, here we go. Seattle's pledge to defund its police department by 50%, even including a proposal to remove 911 dispatchers from police control. Joe Biden said he's absolutely on board with defunding the police. Listen closely. Yes, absolutely. Hello. You've reached 911. I'm sorry that there is no one here to answer your emergency call. But leave a message, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. I'm Donald J. Trump, and I approve this message. Can you stop embarrassing yourself, please? This isn't working, and it's not going to work. And by the way, that ad has a brazen lie in it. They have Sean Hannity saying, like, Biden said he wants to defund the police. And then they, you hear Biden say, like, yes, absolutely, or something. He did not say that in response to a question about defunding the police. In fact, he said the opposite. He said, I'm not in favor of defunding police. That's what he said. He wants to increase police funding and also have some funds redirected towards, you know, certain things that the cops shouldn't have to do but do at the moment. Like, okay, we need some more mental health professionals and rehab people and, like, stuff like that. Joe Biden was the author of the crime bill. The crime bill is mass incarceration. Now, I criticize him on that. I criticize him on that. Why? Because I'm to the left of that. I don't want to lock people up for nonviolent drug offenses like Joe Biden did. Now, Trump and the Republicans, on the other hand, they all claim to be tough on crime and act like they're tough on crime. So really, they should be praising Joe Biden for the crime bill because they believe in the crime bill. They all voted for the crime bill. 
Now, Trump just makes less than no sense because this is a dude who signed the First Step Act, which is a very small step towards, you know, reversing the trends of mass incarceration. But instead of hitting Biden on that and saying, actually, I'm to the left of him on this and I'm freeing nonviolent drug offenders and I signed the First Step Act, what does he do? He pivots to the right of him, plays the macho man law and order game, and acts like extremist, radical, Antifa, Marxist Joe Biden. Nobody is going to believe that. Joe Biden has a very long political track record. Joe Biden is a tried-and-true neoliberal corporatist, effectively a moderate Republican. So when you hit the moderate Republican and act like he's some sort of commie, nobody across the country is going to believe that except the people who are already high on Donald Trump's farts. The people who already, whatever Daddy Trump says is great, and I agree with it, and I love it. And that's only 30% of the country. So everybody else is like, what are you doing? The idea that in Joe Biden's America, you pick up the phone and you call the cops and they're like, oh my God, they're not there. We've abolished the police under Joe Biden. Oh my God. How stupid. How stupid. And by the way, there have already been ads on this. Trump has gone down in the polls. So he releases it again. He's going to go down even more. Are you incapable of learning? Are you incapable of course correcting and adjusting? And in the previous ads, this is my favorite of of everything. They show video of Trump's America with like buildings burning. And they say, this is what Joe Biden's America is going to look like. The video was taken in Trump's America. That is literally what your America looks like. And by the way, there's a very persuasive argument that Trump is pouring fuel on the fire on a regular basis. I think that if he wasn't deploying federal troops and he didn't threaten the Insurrection Act, these protests would have died off a hell of a lot sooner. When he steps up and says, well, now I'm going to send these thug federal agents wearing camo for no reason to arrest random protesters, that gets more people out there, you jackass! Because then people go, oh, well, now I have a patriotic duty to show up because, you know, look at what's going on. Look at this authoritarian crackdown. I can't let this stand. He's such a piece of garbage, man. He's such a piece of garbage. This is the worst campaign I've ever seen. And the fact that I keep coming back to, which is amazing to me, is that... um, This is the first time in the history of modern America since we've been polling elections where a presidential candidate has been leading the other presidential candidate and it's always been more more than the margin of error. That's what's happening now with Joe Biden. He's been leading Trump the entire time and always by more than the margin of error. In July of 2016, Hillary was up four points on Trump. In July of 2020, Biden is up 15 points on Trump. Now, you could scream fake news, you could scream 2016, you could scream silent uh, majority, Trump people will show up anyway. They already crunched the numbers on that. Somebody did the study. If you had the same number of people with the secret Trump vote that came out in 2020, uh, Joe Biden would still win 310 electoral votes. But listen, I don't even know why I'm doing this segment, because by all means, I I encourage Donald Trump, keep going down this path. Keep pretending Joe Biden is an Antifa Marxist, you know, Um, and keep pretending that he's against law and order and he's for chaos in the streets and all that stuff. 
and you'll just continue to plummet in the polls. Seriously, one of the most embarrassing campaigns I've ever seen. Do you have any idea? Trump could have won this election. Here's all he had to do. Step number one, run the exact same playbook you ran against Hillary. That's step number one, the exact same playbook. You hit him on corruption, you hit him on the Iraq war, you hit him on outsourcing the jobs. That's step one. He, he is Hillary Clinton. That's step one. He is Hillary Clinton. You run that exact same campaign. Outside of that, all Trump had to do was never stop pretending to lead on COVID. So when he took that break from his poll numbers were up when he was doing the daily press uh, briefings when it came to COVID-19. Then he stopped. It went down immediately because people were like, oh, he doesn't even, he's not even trying to fight the problem. So all he had to do was pretend to lead on COVID like Andrew Cuomo did, have the regular press conferences. If he had just ordered universal masks in like April, the death rate would at least be cut in half and he would look like he's leading if he does the daily press conferences. That and just if he had passed a recurring stimulus check for the remainder of the crisis. That's it. That's all it would have taken. Treat Joe Biden exactly like he's Hillary Clinton, step number one. Step number two, lead or at the very least pretend to lead on coronavirus. Should have kept doing those daily press conferences and pretending like you're a serious man who's in control of all this. Universal mask mandate in like April or even May, let's say. I think he still would have gotten the grace if he did that. And then a recurring stimulus check through, through the remainder of the crisis. If he had just done those things, what was it, four things, five things I said? That's it. He would have won. He would have won. Instead, he's a total mess. He's got no idea whether he's coming or going. He's hitting Joe Biden in the dumbest ways imaginable. He hasn't let it all on coronavirus. Our death toll is 144,000 and rising rapidly. The rest of the developed world has been beating our ass. The only people who are somewhat in league with how bad we did is maybe um, Brazil and India. This is why he's getting his ass kicked. You think you're going to win an election, casually win an election when 144,000 people died on your watch because of a pandemic and you have 20% real unemployment and 32% of people can't pay their housing bill? You think you're going to win re-election like that? And meanwhile, you're hitting Joe Biden on the made-up problem that he wants to defund the police when he doesn't. The guy who wrote the crime bill wants to defund the police. You're incredibly embarrassing. I, I don't, if you're somebody who's on the right and you happen to be watching this clip, I pity you. You're, you're embarrassing. Even you know that if Donald Trump did the things I said, he'd probably win. But he didn't do any of those things. And now he's down. So instead of deflecting and obfuscating and saying, but my 2016, it ain't 2016, bitch. It's 2020. It's 2020. Get that through your head. Get that through your head. Now we're going to go to Squeaky Benjamin. He's back, Ben Shapiro, uh, or as I call him, Squeaky Benjamin. He made a preposterous claim on Fox News. He's talking here about coronavirus and Trump. Watch this. And, you know, right now, Ben, the number one, you know, charge of government is to try to figure out how to handle this pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic, the president has, you know, he's gotten a lot of criticism for the federal response. Where do you see us being right now as we respond? I mean, look, I think everybody's doing their best. I really do. I mean, I live in a democratic state. I'm not real fond of our governor here in California, Gavin Newsom, but I think that most 
people are actually trying to do their best. I think the great lie that you're seeing is that there is an obvious and absolute answer to all of this, and that is things like lockdowns, and if those don't occur, then everybody is going to die. I think that if the answers were all that obvious, then they would be applied. I mean, the fact is everybody is trying to deal with an unprecedented situation. I think President Trump's response in terms of his actual policy has been very good. I think the media have been attempting to focus in on his rhetoric a lot more than they've been focusing in on his policy. If you focus in on his policy, what you see is people like Gavin Newsom and Andrew Cuomo mentioning that Trump gave them the resources they needed when they needed them. The fact that this has become political as opposed to just a question of let's all do the best we can to get back to a, a functioning economy and a functioning life in America while stopping the pandemic. The fact that this has become political is just an indication as to how loose our moorings are in terms of national unity. Ben Shapiro, one of the things he's most known for repeating is facts over feelings. So let's speak his language here. I have some facts for you, Ben. Notice he says, oh, well, his policy has been good, and then he doesn't name any of his policies on COVID-19? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Show your work, dog. You can't just say, well, his policy has been good, and then not mention any of his policies. What are the policies that are good? You just said they're good. What are they? Please. I'll wait. Tell me. What are the things that are good? Tell me. You said it's good. What are those things that are good? I'll wait. Now, the actual facts on this. 144,000 Americans are dead as a result of COVID-19. 144,000. That's more than two Vietnams in terms of U.S. casualties from Vietnam. This is a much higher death rate than other developed countries. Perhaps the only other countries that are struggling as much as we are are Brazil and India. Other developed countries have handled this spectacularly well compared to us. So when you look at the results, when you look at the facts, indeed, we are performing uniquely terribly on the world stage. So you can't say policy is good because then these wouldn't be the results. The results would not be, uh, be 144,000 deaths. Now, beyond that, 32% of the country didn't make their housing payment in July. I submit to Ben Shapiro, are those people just all of a sudden very lazy? Is that what happened? Do they need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps? Or is it a direct result of the COVID-19 pandemic and the subsequent economic depression that we're currently in? Which one do you think it is? Which one sounds more reasonable? Which one is Occam's razor? 32% of the country woke up one day and said, you know what, I'm lazy. I'm not going to pay my housing bill. Or the entire economy is imploding. 28 million people, it's been reported, can become homeless in the near future as a result of COVID-19 and the economic fallout. 27 million Americans have lost their job-based health insurance. Millions and millions of people are hemorrhaging their health insurance in the middle of a pandemic, Ben. Everything else was not bad, and we were handling it well, and still only that one fact existed, that 27 million Americans have lost their job-based health insurance. I would say, oh, it's been a failure. Because some of the, if you don't have insurance, the treatment for COVID-19, the bills are up to $75,000. $75,000. This is why medical bills is one of the top causes of bankruptcy. So on that fact alone, this has been an abysmal failure. 40% of restaurants are in danger of permanently closing. 
And I haven't even gotten into the, the COVID-19 bailouts where effectively Wall Street and the financial institutions, these big corporations, got the keys to the treasury given to them by Goldman Sachs lackey Steve Mnuchin, and they've been looting the treasury left and right. So basically all the corporations got socialism fully implemented for them, and working people got a measly one-time stimulus check of $1,200 and some extended unemployment benefits, which are running out now, by the way, very soon, within the next few days. So there was a giant bailout, and the money went to the rich in corporations, and he's saying this thing was a success. By the way, what happened? I thought you were a small government guy, which means you shouldn't be in favor of any bailouts, theoretically, whether it's for regular people or for the wealthy. But we had a bailout of the corporations and the wealthy, and all of a sudden you're saying that this, the coronavirus response was a success? This was a, an abysmal disaster. What policies were successful? None of this was successful. What are you talking about? Now, this is where a reasonable person who's watching this might say, okay, but Kyle, what, so what did you want him to do? Those, they're incredibly simple answers to that. I always use the example of Japan. Now, Japan never did a total economic shutdown like we did here. They did very targeted economic shutdowns, which I guess, you know, makes sense in a pandemic. But they had less than 1,000 COVID-19 deaths. And the main reason why is they reasonably socially distance, they care deeply about the hygiene, and masks are basically universal. So if you had Donald Trump in, let's say, early April, when we already knew how bad of a problem this COVID-19 was, in early April, if Trump said, I'm doing a, a federal mask mandate, Everybody who's uh, outside has to wear a mask. Everybody who's not in their home has to wear a mask. And, um, you know, certain targeted shutdowns make sense. Like you can't have re indoor eating at restaurants because you have to take your mask off to eat at the restaurant. So you, that wouldn't work. So you have to shut down like indoor restaurants, for example, maybe some other things like movie theaters or whatever. But like you could do the targeted economic shutdowns, not the total broad-based one, right, and have universal masks and that alone according to one study, would have cut our deaths one-twelfth of what they are now. So there you go. Universal masks that he did early on, and I would have loved it if Trump was selling masks on his own website with Make America Great Again written on it, because what, what would happen is a lot of the hardcore Trump people would wear masks because Trump is telling them to wear a mask. They're like, of course, yeah, makes sense. Pandemic, duh. And lefties, it's not like lefties. There are some who are like the hardcore partisan idiots who'd be like, He's pro-mask, so now I'm anti-mask. But the overwhelming majority of Democrats would have been like, it's a pandemic. Yes, I'm going to wear a mask, duh. Because, you know, it's the Democrats who believe in evolution, the Democrats who believe in climate change, the Democrats who are generally more pro-science. So even if Trump's out there rah-rah, you know, all rah-rah masks, Democrats would have been like, yeah, I agree, masks, good idea, let's do that. So just that alone, Ben, that alone would have been gigantic. That alone would have been huge. But he didn't do that. And in fact, as recently as, you know, a couple days ago in his interview with Chris Wallace, Chris Wallace asked him, why not do a mask mandate? And he was like, I don't believe in that because freedom. And then he went on to say, I want to force the schools to open. So he says, you know, hey, man, no mask mandate because I believe in freedom. The states need to make their own decision. And then when it comes to the schools, he's like, no, I don't want the states to make their own decision. I want to force them to open the schools. 
All right, so Ben, what are the answers? How could this have been a success? Targeted economic shutdowns, universal mask policy. That, those are the two most important things. Beyond that, we could have copied the other countries whose economies have weathered this storm well. But you do that by temporarily nationalizing wages. This is what Germany did, for example. There's a bunch of countries that did this. I think the UK did a version of this as well, where the government said to the businesses, listen, we have a crisis here. You guys aren't going to fire anybody. We're not going to let you fire anybody. What you're going to do is you're going to furlough everybody. And you furlough them, and we, the government, will step in and pay about 75% of their wages for the duration of the crisis. And then what happened? The unemployment rate barely budged. Barely budged. In Japan, the unemployment rate's like 3%. Now, we at the time had a 3 or 4% unemployment rate here when this thing started. Now the real unemployment rate is over 20%. The official one's like 11%. We could have just done the same thing that they did, and we wouldn't have had this problem. But we didn't do that. We, it, it's a dog-eat-dog world here. You're on your own. There were companies that took bailouts and turned around and fired everybody anyway. Boeing did that, for example. Here, let's take billions of dollars, shake down the taxpayers, take billions of dollars, and then turn around and fire everybody anyway. Our response has been a joke. Now, I'm being specific in terms of policies that were bad and what we could have done to fix it. Now, even if Ben says that's too big government-y, I don't like it. I don't like the nationalization of wages, even if it's temporarily, and even if other countries have proven that it works. Okay, Ben, then a UBI for the duration of the crisis was absolutely necessary. You support that one? My guess is no. But these are the answers, guys. Either temporarily nationalize wages, uh, do a, a UBI for the duration of the crisis, universal masks. Like, these are the solutions that would have actually worked. But instead, he goes out there and says Trump's policy has been a success without naming Trump's policies or acknowledging that 144,000 Americans are dead. That's more than two Vietnams. 32% of the country can't make their housing payment. 28 million Americans... Uh, could become homeless. 27 million Americans just lost their job-based health insurance. About 40% of restaurants could permanently close, which gets to the main point. If this was a Democratic president with these facts, Democratic president with these facts I just gave you, what would Ben say? What would he say? My guess is he wouldn't say, oh, well, we did that, we couldn't. Gosh, golly, gee, Papa, what a good policy. <laughs> What a cuck. Come on, man. What happened to the facts over feelings? There are no facts there. It's just your feelings. Okay. Next. Let's go to Hannity versus Tucker Carlson. I really enjoy this story for a number of reasons. This is, like, really interesting to me. So Hannity and Tucker Carlson had a really awkward exchange when Tucker went to hand it off to Hannity. See, Tucker's on first. I think his time slot's 8 o'clock. Hannity's on next. It's 9 o'clock. Or maybe it's 9 and 10. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Tucker's first. Hannity second. Tucker ends his show, hands it off to Hannity. Hannity takes a pot shot at him. Interesting. So... I'm not just going to show you the little pot shot because I want to give you the full context. Here you're going to see the exact segment Tucker did that led to the pot shot from Hannity, and then we're going to come back and talk about it.
lockdowns, whether they were necessary or not, have indisputably crushed huge parts of the American economy. Millions of Americans remain out of work. Many more are draining their savings once the government stops paying a huge portion of the population to stay at home. We don't know what will happen. But at least one person has become extremely rich, richer than any man in history, from all of this, including a lot of the suffering. That would be Amazon CEO, Democratic donor, owner of the Washington Post, Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos, just yesterday, made $13 billion. Now, 20 years ago, if that had happened, if a captain of industry had made $13 billion in a single day while the country got poorer, the Democratic Party would have had something to say about it. Not anymore, because the people getting rich are members of the Democratic Party. Chadwick Moore is not. He's an editor at Spectator USA. We're happy to have him on tonight. Chadwick, thanks so much for coming on. I'm not against wealth accumulation. I'm not against free enterprise. But $13 billion in a day suggests something is skewed with the system, no? I'm beginning to think that maybe this isn't uh, your parents' Democrat Party or even your uh, parents' or grandparents' Communism, uh, you know. I mean, yeah. do you think that the well, Jeff Bezos makes thirteen billion dollars in a day, and of course he's not the only one. Mark Zuckerberg also had a uh, very fantastic week, and and since coronavirus, uh, big tech is obviously making uh, money uh, hand over fist during the coronavirus pandemic, which is one of the reasons why I think they've been uh, censoring anyone, who, or especially medical professionals, who who dare to question the lockdown. Uh, That's right. But um, I'm beginning to think that uh, while they're doing this, you've got the New York Times, you've got the Washington Post, you've got the Atlantic, you've got every left-wing media outlet run by these smug elites who aren't saying, a, while they pretend to care about the little guy, they're not saying a word about this. And what are they doing? Bashing police officers. Exactly. They 60 grand a year? This is the new party. This is not the... Uh, the, the communism or socialism of the progressive, progressive era of the, you know, the early 20th century, even the labor movements across the West in the 1970s, uh, this, is, uh, this is a party and a place for rich people and elites. Uh, uh, of course, the exception to that is they would like to see a permanent underclass, which they're working quite hard to ensure. They really, really don't like uh, average working people. They don't like people who make the kind of salaries that police officers do. But they like cheap service. Really quick, I, I was confused when Bezos personally bought a garbage publication like the Washington Post. Now I'm thinking it was pretty smart PR. Buy the paper so you never get criticized. Well, and it's a cabal, because then the rest of the uh, papers won't criticize them, because they're all in the same game together, especially in an election year. So why would they dare criticize the owner of one of their allies to help get their man into office? One thing about Jeff Bezos, not stupid. I'm not a fan, but you've got to say he's pretty smart. No. Chadwick Moore. Great to see you tonight. Thank you so much. Thanks. My pleasure. Thanks. Another hour has drained through the hourglass. Life in a microcosm. That's it for us tonight. We'll be back, though, tomorrow night, 8 p.m., the show that is now and always the sworn enemy of lying, pomposity, smugness, and groupthink. Our annual reminder to try and figure out the DVR, if possible. And if so, congratulations. Beyond our capability. Have a great night. And now, Sean Hannity takes over from New York. People who make money, they provide goods and services people want, need, and desire. That's America. It's called freedom, capitalism, uh, and as long as it's honest, right? People decide. All right, Tucker, great show. Uh, oh. <laughs> oh, okay. So, um, 
Hannity is out of the movement conservatism. And this is, they're married to the ideology of neoconservatism and hawkishness when it comes to foreign policy, and they're pro-imperialism, basically. Um, And also, they're married to Reaganomics, trickle-down economics, deregulation of the marketplace, and, um, you know, cut taxes for the wealthy, and let the free market do its thing and keep the government out. And actually, that's a little misleading because they're also massive corporatists. So he says he's for small government and against subsidies, but then he's totally fine with, you know, government subsidies, welfare checks going to the wealthy, going to the corporations. So this is the school of political ideology that Sean Hannity is from, okay, to the extent he has any ideology because really he's just a hack. Tucker is at least nominally from a paleoconservative school of thought. The paleoconservative school of thought is one that says that's more skeptical of interventions and war. I think he's still for some semblance of the current world order and hierarchy where the U.S. is like the sole superpower, but he's not in favor of these all-out neoconservative, boots-on-the-ground, total hawkishness approach. He thinks that goes too far. So he's more skeptical of, um, you know, foreign policy, U.S. foreign policy. He's a little bit more of an isolationist. In terms of trade, he's definitely more skeptical of that stuff. This is all like Pat Buchanan school of thought. So they dissent from the right-wing orthodoxy, the paleoconservatives do, on foreign policy um, and on trade and in some ways on corporate power, okay? This is nominally where these two camps are. Now... Here's why Tucker's a fake populist. Because look at the argument he crafts there. He basically says, like, look, Jeff uh, Bezos, he made $13 billion in a day. Democrats are cucks to billionaires. They're cucks to corporate power. This is unacceptable. Um, The guest quite literally says Democrats are a party for rich people and elites. And the implication he's making is, The Republicans aren't. It's the Democrats who are on the side of the corporations. It's the Democrats who are on the side of the billionaires. Now listen, are the Democrats on the side of corporations and billionaires? Yes, but so are the Republicans, Tucker. And by the way, there's a strong argument even more so than the Democrats. Now, how can I prove this? It's actually very simple. You know, there was a piece of legislation that was proposed, I believe, last year or two years ago, and it was called... The Stop Bezos Act. You know who proposed that, Tucker? It was Ro Khanna and Bernie Sanders. The Stop Bezos Act. And you know what they did? They successfully bullied him into raising his minimum wage to a living wage. Now, I don't know if there was a single Republican that signed on to that piece of legislation. I mean, maybe there was one or two. But all you had was Democratic support for that. Now, it's not all the Democrats, because there are Democrats who are totally beholden to billionaires and to Wall Street and to corporations. But it was Ro Khanna and Bernie Sanders and the populist left and members of the Progressive Caucus who supported the Stop Bezos Act and bullied him into raising his minimum wage to a living wage. So now let's bring Hannity back into the conversation. 
So Tucker does this whole grandstanding thing about, I'm Tucker Carlson, I'm a populist, I'm going to beat up on corporate power. And Hannity immediately defends corporate power because he's just a dumbass. (laughs) No, actually, free markets are good. Okay, was it good when Jeff Bezos got billions of dollars worth of subsidies where cities are basically begging for him to bring jobs there so they basically are willing to give him however much in taxpayer money that he wants? That's welfare. That's not a free marketplace. That's a giant subsidy. That's a leg up on the competition. Is that okay, Hannity? He's too stupid to understand that this isn't, that's not actually a free market. But anyway, Hannity rushes in and is like, um, actually, uh, capitalism is good. Billionaires are good. Corporations are good. Isn't this wonderful? <laughs> and Tucker's making the face like, what? Now, this just shows that Hannity's dumb because what Tucker is doing here is sophisticated propaganda. Hannity's still too stupid to actually act like he's on the popular side of the issue. See, if Hannity was smart, he would agree with Tucker and say, like, yeah, billionaires are ridiculous, and they're really robbing regular people, and they're elites, and they're against working people. I agree. But Hannity's too stupid to realize that what Tucker is doing is he's using this anti-corporate language, this anti-billionaire language, this anti-elite language to redirect anger at the Democrats for it and imply that the Republicans are the solution. See, Tucker's a much more sophisticated propagandist. He goes out there and he acts like he's anti-corporate, he's anti-billionaire, I'm fighting for the regular people, and he links Amazon and Bezos to the Democrats. Corporations, Democrats, billionaires, Democrats. And just say that over and over and over. Elites, Democrats. And then people go, yeah, I hate elites too, I hate billionaires too, I hate corporations too, and they're all the Democrats' fault. Republicans are for working people. Meanwhile, of course they're not. They're just as bad, if not worse in many respects. Worse in many respects. Um, so he doesn't mention Ro Khanna. He doesn't mention Bernie Sanders. He doesn't mention the Stop Bezos Act. He doesn't mention that Democrats are actually for a higher marginal tax rate on the wealthy and that Joe Biden is for a higher corporate tax rate. He doesn't mention that. Joe Biden's for a higher corporate tax rate. He's for 28%. Trump made it 21%. Are you going to admit that Biden's tougher on corporations in this respect? Are you going to admit that, Tucker? Of course you're not going to admit that. Because, again, he's a sophisticated propagandist. He pretends to be a populist to redirect populist rage only against the Democrats and in favor of the Republicans. Whereas Hannity is too stupid to do sophisticated propaganda. He's stuck in a previous era in the late 90s or the early 2000s when he was first on air. Where he's like, rich people are good and you're demonizing success. I'm pro-success. Anybody who's not for billionaires means that they're against success. Something. He's just, he's a dinosaur. He's a dinosaur. But I will say this, at least in the case of Hannity, it's more honest. Because Tucker pretends to be against the elites and the billionaires while fundamentally supporting the politicians who prop them up even more. Whereas Hannity's upfront is like, I support the billionaires and the corporations, and I'm therefore going to support the politicians who support the billionaires and the corporations. So it's almost like Tucker's a little more deceptive in that. Because he's pretending like he's anti-elitist as he supports the most elite politicians of all time. So anyway, that's my breakdown there. It's funny that there is this rift on the right because fundamentally they end up still agreeing on who to support. And it would have been very interesting to see how Tucker covers his tracks if it was Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump. Because there is, you can't even make a BS argument that Trump is more populist and anti-elitist and anti-billionaire than Bernie Sanders. Simply can't do it. 
Not possible. So if it was Bernie versus Trump, my guess is Tucker would still be backing Trump, but he would have to come up with ever more creative and desperate arguments to make it look like, well, actually, no, Trump is to the left of Bernie on the billionaires and corporations and stuff. So am I, bro. Oh, these guys are really something else, aren't they? Okay. All right, I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, Democrats are at it again and acting like Republicans. Do not go anywhere. I'll be right back.
Son of a bitch, I'm back, y'all. I am back up in this business. Okay, so, um, we are going to go to some news that's pretty pathetic, but we have clear lines of demarcation, so I feel like this is actually a very important story in terms of knowing who's on your side and who's not. And I actually have an update to the story that just hit. So let me, I'm going to pull up the update. So this new trick I've been doing, it's actually incredibly genius. (laughs) I'm a genius if I don't say so myself. I sound like Kanye or like Trump. Um, But wait until I say it, then you're going to be like, damn, he really is a genius. So I take, uh, I'll pour seltzer, of course. I'll pour seltzer in something, right? So I got my polar seltzer today. And um, I'll pour it in. And then I take Crystal Light. These companies should be paying me because this is a great advertisement for them. The one I have today is Pink Lemonade. But I've also done it with the regular lemonade. And I've also done it with uh, Strawberry Crush. And what I do is, these are like the individual packets. And what I do is, I turn seltzer into like a soda. And usually, these things are a little too strong. So what I do is usually pour like half the packet in. But like, I'll have seltzer, fresh, really bubbly, cold. And then you pour in like half of a pink lemonade thing. And now I have pink lemonade soda. What? Come on, son. Come on with that. I could have lemonade soda, pink lemonade soda, strawberry soda. I told you I was a genius. You didn't want to hear it. You didn't want to hear it. That's genius shit. I might be more proud of this than anything I've ever done in my life. I came up with this. I made this. I built that. Oh, it's so damn good. I love it. Okay, anyway. Okay. Bad news. So we go from having some fun to now it's bad. Bad news. Democrats are unfortunately at it again. And what I mean by that is They're acting like Republicans. Breaking a House vote to cut the Pentagon by 10% just failed 93 to 324. But this is the first time in decades that Congress has considered a significant cut to Pentagon spending. The military-industrial complex will fall. We will end our addiction to endless costly wars. Um, 139 Democrats voted with the Republicans. 139 Democrats voted with the Republicans. I don't know if you know this. It's a Democratic House. And I'll repeat the number again. 93 votes to cut the Pentagon budget by just 10%. Just 10%. 324 against. So virtually all the Republicans save a handful. And 139 Democrats. 
the usual suspects, by the way. So, I'll, of course, I'll tell you some of the good votes. You have Ro Khanna, you have Tulsi Gabbard, you have Mark Pocan, you have Raul Grijalva, you have AOC, you have Ilhan Omar. It's the usual people who voted the right way. And then the bad votes include uh, Clyburn, Wasserman Schultz. Shout out to Jen Perlman, everybody. Jen Perlman's running against Wasserman Schultz, so support Jen Perlman however you can. Um, you have Swalwell was a bad vote. Nita Lowy was a bad vote. That's my district, but thankfully she's going to be gone and replaced with Mondaire Jones very soon. Uh, and Steny Hoyer was a bad vote. So th- this story is actually really important because we have clear lines of demarcation. Like, every single person who voted against cutting the military budget 10%, they're hopeless. I have no hope for them. Don't hit me with, like, what about the blue no matter who? If you can't agree to something as simple as just a 10% military cut, guys, I got news for you. Even if we cut our military by 50%, we'd still have the biggest military in the world by far and away. You can't even agree to a 10% cut. I have zero interest in you. I don't want to hear your blue no matter who garbage. You are a Republican. You are a Republican. Okay, that's it. That's what you are. You're a Republican. If you can't agree to cut the military even 10%, that tiny amount, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Don't you dare ever ask the left for, for money, donations, for help campaigning or canvassing. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. You're donezo. You're on the enemy list. You need to be primaried, and you need to be primaried ASAP. So the reason why the story is important is because we get clear lines of demarcation as to who even has the potential of reform. Like there are some people who voted the proper way on this bill who I might have other massive disagreements with them. But you know what? At least I can work with you a little bit, and there's some little bit of hope that's there. But if you can't even agree with 10% military cut, I, I don't want to hear it. There's no hope. You're, you're totally diametrically opposed to me and my ideology. And, you know, I am against war. I only think we should use war for defense of imminent attack against the nation. I only believe in defensive militarism, never offensive. And unfortunately, right now, we're the world's sole superpower. We always go on the offense. We're always doing wars that are illegal, immoral, unethical, stupid, still bombing up to eight different places, shadow war going on in Africa. All at the same time, 32% of Americans can't pay their housing bill. 40% of small businesses are on the, the... verge of bankruptcy because of the COVID-19 pandemic, and you can't cut the military budget 10%, 10%. Now, by the way, right before I did this segment, we got uh, news coming out of the Senate. Jake Tapper says, Bernie Sanders' amendment to cut Pentagon budget, the current proposal is $705.4 billion. So it's, this is the same thing, 10% cut to the Pentagon budget, and the idea is you reallocate the funds to social programs like education and health care. In the Senate, it also failed 23 to 77. 23 to 77. So yet again, clear lines of demarcation. Next time somebody asks you, next time somebody asks you, hey, how many are even salvageable? 
in Congress? Here's your answer. There are 93 votes in the House that we could work with. There are 93 that are somewhat acceptable or decent. Again, I might have disagreements on other issues with them, but at least they got this, right? So there's 93 in the House, and there's, what's the number again? I think 23, 23 in the Senate. All the other ones can kiss my ass and kick rocks. I don't want to hear the bullshit, because you know what? There was just a report that came out, I believe it was from Sludge, where they say the House Democrats who voted with Republicans against a 10% cut to the Pentagon budget have received far more defense industry money than the Democrats who supported the proposal. So let me put that in layman's terms for you. The Democrats who were against the 10% Pentagon cut are incredibly corrupt. That's what that means. So just so everybody understands, this isn't like a, oh, Kyle, you're not being fair because you have some genuine ideological disagreements with these Democrats on this one issue, but there are other issues where you might agree with them. No, because it's not an honest disagreement. I am not corrupted by money from frickin' Raytheon and Boeing, so I can look at this issue objectively. They are corrupted by money from Raytheon and Boeing. This is what makes our, our politics function. This is who your politicians are representing. This is who they're representing. They're representing the military-industrial complex. They're representing Wall Street. They're representing whoever cuts them big checks for their re-election campaign. So not only is, is a vote in the wrong direction on this, a support of the status quo, not only is it militaristic, hawkish, and imperialistic, it's also colossally corrupt. And I have no interest in any of these people. I'm I'm completely done with them. They could piss right off. I hate them. (laughs) I hate them with every fiber of my being. Primary every single one of these motherfuckers. Every single one of them. It's a long road. It's tough. It's annoying. We have setbacks all the time. But we also get wins from time to time. Look at Mondaire Jones, my district. I couldn't be happier about that. Look at Jamal Bowman. Couldn't be happier about that either. We can't afford to just let the bad guys run the show forever. The elected Republicans are useless. But the corporate Democrats are also useless. We need to acknowledge that there is a civil war going on in the Democratic Party. Acknowledge it's going on and then fight for our side on that civil war. There's no reason to obfuscate or play the blue no matter who game in all circumstances. If you want to have nuanced conversations about differences at the highest level, yes, we could talk about the differences between Joe Biden and between, you know, Joe Biden and Donald Trump and how are they different and, and who's better on what and why and what do we do about that. We could have all those nuanced conversations. But the thing I have zero patience for and zero tolerance for is those who would obfuscate and pretend like there aren't colossal differences, especially in an instance like this where it comes to the Senate and the House. Don't tell me that they're all basically the same. They're not. A Democrat is not a Democrat is not a Democrat. They're not all the same. There are massive differences when you go person to person. And now we have some clear lines of demarcation. You know who there's a prayer you could work with, and you know who there's, there's no hope for it. 93 in, in 
the House and 23 in the Senate. And that, I think that's a pretty lenient definition, too, if I'm being honest with you. Because here we are at a time where we have a pandemic, we have a depression, and we have a bunch of horrendous COVID bailout bills that overwhelmingly went to corporations. Your average person is getting hammered right now. Hammered. And you only had 23 in the Senate and 93 in the House that said, hey, maybe we should cut the military budget 10% or redirect those funds into health care and education and things of that nature. I mean, we're, the bar is so goddamn low. So goddamn low. They couldn't even muster a majority in, in the House. It's, this is embarrassing. This is embarrassing. Primary every single one of those corrupt assholes because that's exactly what they are. They're useless. They are our enemies. And don't let anybody shame you into shutting up. Don't let anybody gaslight you into thinking that you're the unreasonable one. No. Voting to not cut the Pentagon 10% and redirect that money to the people in the middle of a pandemic, that's as unreasonable, extreme, corrupt, and imperialistic as it gets. Okay, next. Even at this late date, I'm surprised at the extent to which Democratic leadership enables and emboldens Trump and the Republicans. But nonetheless, here we are. So this is from Ryan Grimm of The Intercept, and he says the following. The rogue deployment of secret federal police forces in Portland, Oregon, has added a new complication to negotiations over reauthorization, re, excuse me, reauthorizing the Trump administration's vast surveillance powers and appropriating new money for the Department of Homeland Security. In March, a sweeping set of government authorities to monitor people in the United States expired, and Congress continues to debate what limits should be put on such powers before reauthorizing them. And the House is debating its next DHS funding bill, with the Congressional Progressive Caucus pushing leadership not to bring it up for a vote, given Trump's abuse of power and DHS agents' role in a Portland arrest. House Democratic leaders, however, are considering lumping in DHS funding with appropriations for the Departments of Labor and Health and Human Services, making it far more difficult for progressive Democrats to oppose. Representative Paul said the Congressional Progressive Caucus is urging leadership either not, either to not bring up the bill at all or to break it off from labor and HHS and allow for a separate vote. So let me put that in layman's terms for you. Democratic leadership is trying to guarantee continued funding for the Department of Homeland Security and increased spying powers for Trump. The Department of Homeland Security was just involved in this insane scandal where they're, they're the agency that has these federal agents that are in the streets of Portland illegally arresting people. It's the Department of Homeland Security. It's Border Patrol. And they're basically acting as a paramilitary wing of the Trump administration where he's ordered federal agents into Portland and he's threatening to deploy them elsewhere too. And 
They don't have the authorization for this. He's doing it by saying, I've signed an executive order that punishes vandalizing statues and monuments up to 10 years. So he's sending them in. This is against the wishes of the states, and it's against the wishes of the cities. You have the politicians there. You have the police officers there who are like, whoa, 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 we, we don't want this. But he sent them there. Again, they're, not, they're in like unmarked vehicles. They're not clearly showing who they are. They're dressed in camouflage. Federal agent thug goons arresting people illegally, willy-nilly, in violation of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Now, if you had an opposition party that was worth a goddamn, what would they do? Oh, we're going to cut funding to the DHS. Oh, you need to re-up the funding for it? That's nice. What if we don't do that? Hey, like them apples. Oh, I guess, sorry, I guess we couldn't fund your paramilitary squad of goons who's illegally locking people up. My bad. What else would you do if you were actually resisting Donald Trump? Oh, shit, we've re-upped the Patriot Act a number of times. We've expanded his spine powers a number of times. Even when the country was at a fever pitch calling Trump a Manchurian candidate of Vladimir Putin, he's a Manchurian candidate of Vladimir Putin. Why are you giving him extra spine powers? Well, now, Democratic leadership, what are they doing? They're saying, oh, my God, we have some, you know, rowdy, loudmouth, lefty politicians who are saying, hey, maybe let's not fund these paramilitary squads, the DHS paramilitary squads, and maybe let's stop Trump's ability to have expanded authorization for spying. And Nancy Pelosi is gaslighting the progressive caucus and saying, let's try to find a way to guarantee that the Department of Homeland Security gets their funding and Trump has the ability to do the spy. Remind me again who Nancy Pelosi's working for? Remind me again who Chuck Schumer's working for? See, this is what we mean, guys. They are neoliberal corporatists. They are status quo defenders. They are Republican light. That's what they are. They agree with them on so much more. They would rather snub the Progressive Caucus, put their middle finger up to them, and put their middle finger up to the country, then do the right thing, which is why we still haven't had a vote on Medicare for all, even though an overwhelming majority of Democrats want it, and a majority of the country wants it. There's even one poll where it's a majority of Republicans who want Medicare for all. No vote on it. It polls amazingly. It's the solution in the middle of a pandemic, and instead, they don't have a vote on that, but they want to expand COBRA subsidies which is just a giant giveaway to the health insurance companies. This is what you get from these people. This is what you get from Democratic leadership. This is enabling and emboldening to the max. And I don't see, this is what pisses me off more than anything. You have these casual observers of politics who see Nancy Pelosi do her cutesy little thing where she ripped up Trump's speech or, or the condescending clap that she did. And they go, oh my God, yes, slay queen. Yes, queen, slay. Yes. Show him momentary disrespect with symbolism and go back to doing every single thing he ever wanted. Yes, this is resistance. And that's what pisses me off, is that people don't, they don't know the specifics. They don't read the details. They don't follow this stuff as closely as Ryan Grimm does and The Intercept does. They don't know the ins and outs like we do and the story I'm telling you right now. What percentage of the American people know this story I just told you right now? So there's this myth created around her, this total myth about how, you know, she's a resistance hero. She's standing up to Trump. She's enabling him on all of the substantive stuff. 
The only way that they'll ever take him on is symbolically. That's it. They have little disagreements here and there when it comes to policy. Well, on many of the big ticket items like this, a continued authoritarian crackdown and increased spying, she's like, this is business as usual. Let's, let's get this through. I don't want the annoying, whiny progressives to make a stink over rank authoritarianism. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. And here we are. Pathetic. Pathetic. This is the dynamic that we see in this country. The Republicans move further and further and further right, and the Democrats keep meeting them halfway and going further right as well. So now we have a far-right party and a center-right party. Those are your two options. All right, next. Ah, fuck. I fucked up, dog. I let the screenshot thing go too far. Okay, I think... Yeah, here we are. Here we are. Joe Biden. I am perpetually amazed at how pathetic the right-wing strategy has been against Biden. So this is just more of the usual here. This is Fox Business Network. They're going to attack Biden in another way that makes him look better. Presumptive nominee Joe Biden unveiling a third piece of his Build Back Better recovery plan that will cost $775 billion to fund education and caregiving. Here's what he said just moments ago. If we truly want to reward work in this country, we have to ease the financial burden of care that families are carrying. We have to elevate the compensation of those providing the care, the benefits and dignity of caregiving workers and early childhood educators. Here now is Mercedes Schlapp, Trump 2020 campaign senior advisor. So Mercedes, the thought behind that is he says that he is going to give money for universal preschool, um, for child care, and for in-home health care or elder care. So whether you are a parent or you have parents, pretty much everybody, He's going to give you money. How do you battle back against that message? Well, because the reality is that the only way he's going to be able to pay for these big uh, spending ideas is by raising taxes. And so we know, as you know, Melissa, you understand clearly uh, what the detrimental effects that higher taxes means to an economy is the fact that it will take away from, you know, the middle class, which, which we know one of the things that Joe Biden has said from the beginning is that his first step will be to roll back President Trump's tax cuts. So I know he's, you know, right now when you've seen in the last three weeks between his clean energy initiative, between his economic plan and now his new announcement today, you're talking about $3.4 trillion in terms of expense. And then, of course, adding government and bureaucracy to this process, which we know is incredibly inefficient. 
these guys are about to get smoked, dog. This is why they're losing. This is so embarrassing. They can't help themselves. They all, like, revert back to shitty reform conservatism. Wait, that's not the... Oh, movement conservatism. That's the word I'm thinking of. Hold on. I fucked that up. I I used the wrong label. It's pathetic. What you just saw was pathetic. This is why they're getting smoked in the polls, and they all revert back to stupid movement conservatism arguments that appeal to nobody. So we'll break this down. First of all, two quick side comments. Number one, Build Back Better is probably the worst (laughs) slogan I've ever heard. Build Back Better? Build Back Better. You couldn't do better than that? Oh, my God, that's so sad. That's the first point. Second side point is the name Mercedes Schlapp sounds like a porn star and the noise that shit makes when it hits the toilet bowl. Mercedes Schlapp. Okay, I digress. I know that was mean. I don't give a fuck. This is why I like being an outsider. If you're an insider, you can never say something like I just said right there. Anyway, um, they're showing the Biden plan. The Biden plan is universal preschool, um, child care, and in-home health care funding. They're looking at that plan, and they're going, yeah, I'm against it. That's not... Okay. How do you walk into that trap? How do you do that? This is like if, you know, Biden were to put front and center, like, oh, I'm for a living wage. He says he's for it, by the way, but he never talks about it. And I feel like it's just kind of like window. I don't think he's actually going to do it if he's president, but I digress from that. If Biden were to run on, I'm for a living wage. If you work a full time, you should make enough money. If you work full time, you should make enough money to survive. And then Trump was just like, no, I'm against that. If you work a full-time job, you shouldn't make enough money to survive. Everybody be like, what? what? What do you mean? There are certain things that if you disagree with it, you immediately owned yourself. This is one of those things. Universal preschool, child care, and in-home health care funding. You're really going to, that's what you want to run the campaign on? Biden's being ridiculous. We're against universal preschool and child care and in-home health care funding. And what argument did they use? Well, she goes, he's going he's gonna to raise taxes. He says he's going to repeal Trump's tax cuts. 83% of Trump's tax cuts went to the top 1%. 83%. And by the way, Biden talks about they cut the corporate tax rate uh, from 35% to 21%. Biden says, I'm going to raise it to 28%. But these guys, they go out there, they walk right into the trap. Oh, my God, that's ridiculous. This guy wants to raise corporate taxes. What an idiot. <laughs> the rest of the country is looking at you like, what the fuck? What's wrong with you? Of course that's a good idea. Duh. Corporations are making out like bandits. Did you see the COVID-19 bailouts? Did you see how they basically looted the treasury and then turned around and fired people anyway? We're going to have this giant corporate consolidation. All these small businesses are either going to go out or get bought up by bigger businesses, and you're concerned about how those corporations are doing? This is the same thing. Nobody, that 2017 GOP tax law, it was just a giant giveaway to the rich. 
And these guys are out there running Trump's campaign on defending that today in the midst of all the chaos, the pandemic, the depression. And they're out there arguing in favor of the tax cuts for the rich and trying to own Joe Biden. I wanted to do universal preschool, child care and in-home health care funding. It, you know, the right, it, they trip over their own dick eight times a day. And this is such a good example of it now. Joe Biden is so uninspiring as a candidate. He's a standard neoliberal corporatist. But when you watch these right-wing attacks on him, I walk away going, oh, shit, they're making Biden look good as fuck. You know, I, I honestly didn't know that Biden was now putting front and center universal preschool, child care, and in-home health care funding. But now I hear that, and I'm like, yo, that's what's up. Like, this is actually a very good plan that I support. This is something all lefties should get on board with. But more importantly, guys, this is all normie Americans are going to get on board with this. Doesn't matter how many times you scream Antifa or Marxist or whatever, when people hear a candidate arguing for universal preschool, child care, and in-home health care funding, especially in the midst of all this chaos, you know what they're going to do? They're going to go, oh my God, thank God, finally something for me. Finally something for me. All day long, the government's serving the wealthy and the powerful. All day long. And then now finally, they're going to give me some little crumbs here. There's a little bit of crumbs for us, thank God. But they're fighting the battle on this front. His entire campaign team is useless. None of them have any idea what they're doing. You know, the last time around, um, his instincts were better to hit Hillary on being corrupt, to hit Hillary on outsourcing and war. Um, She represents the status quo. The instinct this time to try to paint Biden as like far left and insane, and he's going to raise taxes on you. He's he's been a moderate Republican his entire life. He's not going to raise taxes on regular people. It's just not going to happen. And by the way, that's an issue where I happen to agree with Biden. I wouldn't raise taxes on regular people either. But like, this instinct to frame him that way, it's the, res, the results are in front of our faces, man. We've seen it. We know. He, Trump keeps slipping in the polls. This is why. They have, no, they have no arguments against Biden that are just on their face, solid lines of attack. It's all like, let's pick the few areas that would make him look good and go all in on that. Well, congrats. This is why you went from like five down to 10 down to now 15 down. Okay, next. Average Americans are in desperate need of another stimulus check and more support from the government. since coronavirus obliterated the economy. I mean, that's what happened. For regular people, they're really reeling at the moment. But Republicans, totally disconnected, right back to their same old tricks. Senate Budget Chairman Mike Enzi, Republican of Wyoming, on the Senate floor right now, calling it, quote, critical for us to get a hold of our debt and deficits. Long speech about potential dangers of inflation. Mike Enzi was not concerned about the debt and the deficit when he voted for the 2017 Republican tax cut bill, which 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%, that added $2 trillion to the deficit. He didn't say Dickie McGee's acts. He supported it. He supported adding $2 trillion to the deficit. Supported it. He didn't care about it then. Did he care about it? He, Mike Enzi probably supported every single 
Pentagon budget. And those things are bloated beyond imagination. We spend more money on our military than the next 10 biggest nations combined. Insanity. This is imperialism. This is the world's sole superpower being a bully uh, internationally. He supported that. I, I didn't check, but I'm sure he supported at least some of the coronavirus bailout bills, which were fully implementing corporate socialism and giving corporations everything they could ever want and letting them loot the treasury and the Federal Reserve also with a trillion dollars in liquidity every day propping up the marketplace. I mean, you're digging McGee's talks about the debt and the deficit when that happened. But now that people are so desperate and they're begging Washington, oh my God, I need another stimulus check. Oh my God, I need more relief. Oh my God, I need you to extend unemployment benefits. All of a sudden, oh, the debt and the deficit, bro. What are we going to do with the inflation and all these problems and stuff? Let me explain something to you guys. When there's a giant economic downturn, the overwhelming majority of economists agree now because of history that, oh, the government needs to step in and be the spender of last resort. Because if you decide to embrace austerity when you hit an economic downturn, it will exacerbate the crisis. It will exacerbate it. So that's why, you know, there are two things that help get us out of the Great Depression. Number one is the New Deal. Number two is World War II. And those things required massive, colossal government spending. That's how we got out of the Great Depression. That's how we got out. When you look at um, the subprime mortgage crisis in the Great Recession, now, you could argue we never really got out of that because there's still some terrible lingering effects and income inequalities through the roof, but the bailout of General Motors and the, um, the stimulus spending, the community, the community Reinvestment Act, I'm forgetting the name of it, but it was the bailout of General Motors and it was um, the stimulus bill which were most necessary to help us fight back against that recession and at least dig us out when you look at some nominal indicators, like unemployment, for example. So whether they're left-wing or right-wing economists, most economists agree, modern monetary theory economists, Keynesian economists, they'd all say, well, obviously, when there's a downturn, you've got to spend, spend, spend. What, what's Mike Enzi doing? He's embracing the fringe Austrian belief that just cut spending because the debt and the deficit are so important. Well, if you cut spending when there's an economic downturn, you will turn a recession into a depression or a depression into a great depression or a great depression into a great, great depression. So, you know, interesting how, and this is the most important point, Mike Enzi and nobody else, nobody else said, oh, don't do the bailout of the corporations. Don't do the coronavirus bailout bill. The first ones, the early ones, right? Nobody said, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Everything will be fine if you don't bail out the corporations. No, they all agree. We got to bail out the corporations. What are you talking about? The entire economy will freeze up. Everything will implode on itself if we don't bail them out. Why is it they understand the logic for corporations, but never for the people, ever? 40% of small businesses are on the verge of bankruptcy. 32% of Americans missed a housing payment in July. People who are still employed are taking giant wage cuts, too. So you, you knew let's bail out the corporations and let's spend to do endless war, but never for a UBI, for example. Never for nationalizing wages. Never for Medicare for all. It's incredibly selective how they view this stuff. 
It turns out Mike Enzi, like the rest of them, he takes money from corporations. So that's why when the going gets tough, or even when the going does not get tough, he's still like, yeah, go ahead, take whatever money you want. Whatever money you want. Loot the treasury for all I care. Subsidy, bailout, welfare check, whatever you want to call it. It's all yours. But for people, no, no, no. What about the debt? What about the deficit? What about inflation? What about this? What about that? Listen, guys. There's still a lot more that needs to be done. You know, everybody knows I'm a bigger proponent of I probably wouldn't have done the corporate bailout, but I would have bailed out the people early on. That's what I would have done. Um, and these guys have the exact opposite philosophy because they're incredibly corrupt and they're stupid and they're backwards and they rationalize everything after the fact. Like, I'm sure it, he actually has convinced himself he's drunk the Kool-Aid enough to think, like, no, that is the right thing to do. Oh, is, is nearly 30... Are nearly 30 million people about to go homeless? Is that going to happen? Okay, well, how about um, we don't help them because something, something, debts and deficits, and I read one Austrian economics book in my life, and that's what I'm going to say. These people are representatives of us, and they don't represent us. They're supposed to represent our will, and instead they're actively working to harm us. At a time like right now, when there's a pandemic and a depression, it's really terrifying. All right, next. Representative Ted Yoho, who has one of the silliest names of all time, I must admit, right up there with Dick Butkus, the football player. Um, Apparently, he really went at it with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the hallway of Congress. He reportedly called her a fucking bitch. And I believe she was, like, minding her business, and then he says something to her about um, she made a comment that crime and poverty are linked, that there was this recent spike in crime, I believe, in New York City, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was asked about that in an interview or something, and she said something along the lines of, well, yeah, crime and poverty is linked, so if you really want to lower the crime rate, we should probably do something to substantively address poverty and reduce that and then the crime rate will go right down along with that. And, you know, he took issue with that, said something to her, and she was like, what? And then he said, fucking bitch. So today, he did a non-apology apology. Um, let's, let's watch that, and then I'll tell you how she responded. this morning to address the strife I injected into the already contentious Congress. I have worked with many members in this chamber over the past four terms, members on both sides of the aisle, and each of you know that I'm a man of my word. So let me take a moment to address this body. I rise to apologize for the abrupt manner of the conversation I had with my colleague from New York. It is true that we disagree on policies and visions for America, but that does not mean we should be disrespectful. Having been married for 45 years with two daughters, I'm very cognizant of my language. The offensive name-calling words attributed to me by the press were never spoken to my colleagues, and if they were construed that way, I apologize for their misunderstanding. As my colleagues know, I'm passionate about those affected by poverty. My wife, Carolyn, and I started out together at the age of 19 with nothing. We did odd jobs, and we were on food stamps. I know the face of poverty. And for a time, it was mine. 
that is why I know people in this country can still, with all its faults, rise up and succeed and not be encouraged to break the law. I will commit to each of you that I will conduct myself from a place of passion and understanding that policy and political disagreement be vigorously debated with the knowledge that we approach the problems facing our nation with the betterment of the country in mind and the people we serve. I cannot apologize for my passion or for loving my God, my family, and my country. I yield back. He ends the apology by saying, I cannot apologize. To be specific, I cannot apologize for my passion or for loving my God or my family or my country. Bro, nobody was asking for you to apologize for your God, your family, or your country. These people, they talk to themselves, man. Nobody ever said that to you. Nobody would ever say that to you. Nobody's ever said that in the history of the country. Apologize for your God, bro. You going to apologize for your God, bro? You better apologize for your God. You know what? Apologize for your family while you're at it. See, this is, this, is, this is what happens in the discourse these days, is that nobody's actually interested in, like, talking to each other and hearing out the different ideas and opinions. It really is, like, everybody immediately strawmans the other person and then beats the strawman back. Like, in his mind, he's, what, you think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wants you to apologize for loving your God and your country? I'm so tired, bro. I'm so tired. Now, um, there's so much to object to in this. He says he was once poor. He was once on food stamps. And so he took issue with what she said because you can rise up and succeed and not be encouraged to break the law. That's what he said. But again, Yoho, AOC wasn't encouraging anybody to break the law. She never encouraged anybody to break the law. She's trying to explain the roots of crime. Now, is she correct in every circumstance? Is every crime that's ever been committed throughout history because of poverty? Of course not. And if somebody makes that objection right to AOC, I'm sure she'd concede that point immediately. Like, no, not there. Of course, there are a number of variables that could lead to crime. And, you know, it can come back to personal psychology. It can come back to how you were raised. It could literally come back to, because they've done studies on this, there was somebody who was a mass murderer who had something pressing on the wrong spot of his brain and that made him have violent impulses. There's a million things that could lead to crime. But yes, one of those things is poverty. And that's obvious. And she wasn't saying that like, I'm encouraging people to break the law because of poverty. She was trying to explain how we've gotten to a point where there's a lot of crime. Now, again, you want to say, hey, in this instance, maybe it's different because maybe the rise in crime is directly related to the fact that, I don't know, what would a conservative say? That there's this pushback on police, and so police aren't doing as much hands-on policing as they were, 
And so now they're laying back, and because police have laid back, now you have whatever, I don't know, gangs are committing more crimes and doing more violence. That's theoretically possible, of course. But guys, the general statement that poverty and crime are somewhat linked, yes. You're a lot more likely to commit crime if you don't have basic material well-being. If every single day is a dog-eat-dog world and a struggle, you'd be surprised the type of terrible stuff people would do to make sure they got some food in their belly and a roof over their head and and a break from the degradation. So I, I think that point is clearly true. Obviously, poverty and crime are somewhat linked. Um, it's not, again, it's not perfect. Of course, there are plenty of people who are poor who do not commit crimes, but that doesn't mean that there aren't instances where people are so desperate that they do commit crimes as a result of poverty. But anyway, I digress from that. Um, she came out, AOC, or she responded on Twitter. She was like, that was the worst apology I've ever heard in my life. That wasn't even an apology. He said she didn't even, he didn't even say my name. That's one of the things she said. Um, he does say my colleague from New York or something like that early on. And he does apologize early on, and then it like gradually becomes more defensive. And then by the end, he's like, I won't apologize for my passion. That's not passion. You're just a dick. <laughs> and listen, I, I hate to bring in this angle of it, but I do it because I really think it's true. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and I have a very similar ideology. We have areas where we disagree, but we have a very similar ideology overall. And if I had made the same point that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez made, and I was in Congress, and I walked by Representative Ted Yoho, Ted Yoho would not have said to me the stuff that he said to AOC. He wouldn't have called me a fucking bitch. He wouldn't have called me a fucking asshole. He wouldn't have called me anything. Maybe he would have given me a dirty look, but he would have kept it moving. You want to know why? Because I'm a white guy. And so there is a certain level of acceptance and mutual respect that a guy like Ted Yoho would give me. Because he doesn't know what I'll say back, how I'll respond, what I'll do. You're going to try to call me a fucking asshole or a fucking bitch or whatever in the hallway when I don't even know you? Because you disagreed with something I said. He wouldn't do it. Why does he do it with her? She's been caricatured a million and one ways. There are legitimate criticisms of AOC, of course. But Fox News and the right wing, they've made Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar like their prime targets, and they go out of their way to try to twist every single thing they say to make it seem more inflammatory and extreme than it is. And then it's like radicalizing and brainwashing so many people into thinking she's like a demon on earth. And then you get a situation where Ted Yoho would do something like this because she's been so thoroughly demonized that fuck her. Don't even treat her like a person. Again, if it was me... Even with demonization and massive disagreement and ideology, he, he wouldn't have done that. He wouldn't have done that. But because she's been so thoroughly demonized and she is a woman of color, he's like, fuck her. Like, fuck you, bitch. Like, it's that mutual respect that's not offered in an instance like that. I really do believe that. Now, again, that's not to say they wouldn't hate me. That's not to say that I wouldn't be demonized. Look at how they demonized Bill Clinton, for example. Look at how they're demonizing Biden now. But I guarantee you he wouldn't have said those words to my face in the halls of Congress if I said something similar to what she said and I was walking down those halls. I really do think that's true. Um, now, final point is, and this is probably the most important point, I probably should have led with this, but Ted Yoho is, he's full of it. So he says, oh, I was on food stamps. Well, now he's in favor of cutting food stamps. 
See, this is, I mean, this, that's pathological. I was helped by this program, which is incredibly vital, but I'm going to cut it because he's afraid it, it breeds a culture of dependency. But you're living proof that that's actually not the case. It's not like people who are on food stamps or love the fact that they're on food stamps. No. Sometimes people go through temporary, you know, bad times. And we need to help out the people who are most vulnerable among us. So he used food stamps, and then he, now he tries to cut food stamps. He tries to tie it with work requirements and whatnot. And the other thing is, he's also against raising the minimum wage. So he's against the food stamps. He wants to cut the food stamps, even though he was on them. And also, if you work full-time, Ted Yoho is cool with you not making enough money to survive. I hate these guys, man. I mean, it really is incredible how callous and cold and cruel their ideology is. That is not a debatable one, the idea of a living wage. It's not debatable. It's not debatable. If you're in favor of somebody working full-time and not making enough money to survive, you're in favor of wage slavery. That's what that is. And a lot of people make the argument like, oh, but it's just a, a starting block. Except when it's not for a lot of people. Except when it's not. Plenty of people work those jobs and they never climb up that uh, you know, ladder that's supposed to be there. You have to look at these things objectively. You can't say, oh, we have a system where you could work your way up and make it, bro. But not everybody could be the CEO. Not everybody could be the owner. Not everybody gets to the top. The, the way the system works, by its very nature, it requires many people to stay on that bottom rung of the ladder. So then the question is, well, how do you want to treat the people at the bottom rung of the ladder? I say you at least give them a living wage because that's basic human decency. But other people use the myth of meritocracy to dangle it in front of these poor working people's heads. Oh, if you just work a little harder, if you just try a little harder, if you're just nicer to your boss, well, eventually you'll climb that ladder and you'll be the one at the top of the ladder. If everybody did their best starting right this second, when they're at the bottom rung of the ladder, I'm going to wake up tomorrow, I'm going to do my absolute best to get to the top. If every single person woke up tomorrow and did that, 99% of them still wouldn't make it to the top of that ladder. Why? Because again, those people at the so-called bottom rung are vital and crucial and necessary. And the minute you acknowledge that and you realize that is the minute you understand why Unions are important. Workers' rights are important. A living wage is important. Because we have to value the work as it is. You don't, it's not, the myth of meritocracy is just that. It's a myth. Everybody can't work their way up and get to this glorious position at the top. That doesn't happen. So the rags to riches stories are so few and far between as to be almost negligible. This all goes back to John Rawls' theory, the veil of ignorance. If you were conscious before you were born and you got to pick which country you're going to be born in, which one would you pick? Well, anybody who's making a rational decision, you know what they'd say, right? They'd say somewhere in Scandinavia. Now, why is that? Well, John Rawls' argument is everybody knows the conditions that you would prefer if you, if you know you're about to be born and it's like the lottery, you know, you could pick where you're born, but whatever the conditions are at that place, 
they are what they are. So if you pick America, you could be born to a mother who's addicted to crack or somebody who's poor in Appalachia. Um, or maybe you get lucky and you're Mitt Romney's kid or something. But the veil of ignorance idea is if you give people that option, most people would say, I'll probably pick somewhere in Scandinavia. Why? Because everybody knows the conditions that you're looking for that would necessitate you choosing it. You want good schools. You want good jobs. You want good wages. You want um, paid time off. You want, there's a bunch of things that you would want. Probably most importantly, good uh, hospitals and a good education. An opportunity for everybody. And not, no option of potential extreme poverty at the very bottom rung. So everybody knows the conditions that we're looking for. Where if, if we could pick where we're going to be born before we were born, everybody would pick the place where it's very likely that you're going to be okay. And that's the thing that guys like Ted Yoho, he's never thought about that. He's never acknowledged that. He's one of these guys who believes in, like, the myth of meritocracy and work your way up the ladder, even though we have extreme cases of a tiny number of the richest of the rich here, but also so many people who are necessarily exploited as a result of that and will never make it up. So, you know, I don't know how I got off on this side tangent involving the minimum wage and meritocracy and all this stuff and John Rawls' idea of the veil of ignorance, but listen, it's... He's a hypocrite, and he's full of it. And this is a guy who used food stamps, now he wants to cut food stamps, and he also doesn't value work enough because he doesn't want to pay, make the minimum wage a living wage. He's not pro-union. So spare me your whole, like, I just care so much routine. No, you don't. You're a brainwashed jackass who strawmans and believes the most insane over-the-top theories about your political enemies, and that's obvious. All right, next. Twitter launched a widespread crackdown. Let me, let me set this up for you. Here we go. Twitter launched a widespread crackdown on QAnon accounts and, and QAnon material. So Mediaite says the following. Twitter announced on Tuesday that it had banned 7,000 accounts and limited 150,000 others as part of a widespread crackdown on QAnon activity on the site that, quote, has the potential to lead to offline harm. Last summer, the FBI officially designated the baseless QAnon and Pizzagate conspiracy theories as new domestic extremism threats. Pizzagate infamously involved a bizarre myth that the basement of a Washington, D.C. pizza restaurant was a secret den of pedophilia, which prompted one fervent believer to storm the pizzeria with a loaded rifle and start shooting before surrendering to the police. He was subsequently sentenced to four years in prison. Some journalists who have studied this, who have studied the even more Byzantine and fanciful QAnon phenomenon, have labeled it Pizzagate on bath salts. Twitter, which hosts untold number of QAnon conspiracists who use the site to spread its message, announced it had recently begun taking significant steps to block the source of possible threats or violence spurred by the conspiracies. The moves included permanent suspension of thousands of accounts that violate its policies about having multiple users, directing swarms of abuse, also known as brigading, or setting up alt accounts to evade previous suspensions. 
In addition, the social networking site said it will hide QAnon content from trends and recommendations, avoid promoting its themes and accounts in its search function, and block links from QAnon sites from being shared on Twitter. Twitter safety, here's one of the things they said. We've been clear that we will take strong enforcement action on behavior that has the potential to lead to offline harm. In line with this approach, this week we are taking further action on so-called QAnon activity across the service. All right, so when it comes to QAnon as such, I think they're pretty much wrong about everything. Um, I've seen some of their stuff. It's preposterous. It's absurd. I'm stunned that I'm stunned that anybody believes it. Um, you really have to be a sucker to fall for a lot of the stuff that they say. Oftentimes, they make predictions about stuff, and then it doesn't come to fruition, and then people still go on believing it. It's got the hallmark of like a cult or a fundamentalist religion in that respect. They um, they're absurd. They're ridiculous. And wise up if you've like fallen for what they're doing. It's nonsense. It's total nonsense. Um, and this is coming from somebody who I like to think I, I'm relatively objective when going from conspiracy to conspiracy. Because listen, oftentimes conspiracies are real. Look at the Bay of Pigs, for example. You know, look at the uh, Tuskegee experiments. This is stuff that if you said it at the time, people would be like, oh, that's absurd. That's a conspiracy theory. But it's true. It's true. So you do have to look at these things objectively and on a case-by-case basis. Um, So I think on the substance of it, I think they're wrong. Do I agree with what Twitter did here? No. Now, let me be clear again up front. If you have instances of QAnon people doing direct threats of violence, take it down, of course. And the reason is very simple. Even under the U.S. Constitution and the First Amendment, case law shows Direct threats of violence, that's not protected speech. There are very few exceptions to freedom of speech in this country. Um, You know, libel, slander, these are the obvious ones. But the bar is so high to prove it, which makes sense. But direct threats of violence is another thing that's not protected at all. So, you know, I would say Twitter is well within their rights to say, if somebody's doing direct threats of violence, we can't accept that. We just can't accept that. That's not okay. Doxing or clear cases of extreme harassment, that too, that's not protected. And I'm totally fine with that. But here's my problem with what they did. They pulled 7,000 accounts and limited 150,000 others. You're telling me that there were 7,000 accounts doing direct threats of violence or like doxing people, and there were 150,000 others that required limiting their function? No, because what's actually happening here, and I think this is the only fair reading of the situation, is that they know that this is a conspiracy theory and that these people are a little off And so they're punishing the content of what they believe. By the way, you're feeding into that victim narrative perfectly. Good job, Twitter. Now they're going to be even more emboldened in their belief. They wouldn't pull us down if we we weren't onto something. This is what they're going to think. This is what they're going to think. So pull down. You could go after the specific accounts doing threats of violence or doxing or any of that stuff. But to pull down 7,000 accounts and limit 150,000 others, guys, this is just sloppy thinking. You're punishing people who have fringe beliefs, and it won't stop here. I swear to God, the next time I see anybody on the left make an argument without taking this into account, I'm going to shove my dick in a waffle iron. It, I mean, this, it drives me crazy. It doesn't stop.
stop here. It'll keep going. And then eventually, the chickens will come home to roost. Everybody out there who's smug enough to think, won't happen to me because everything I believe is true and right. The establishment doesn't agree with you. The Silicon Valley oligarch billionaires don't agree with you. The people who you're begging to censor you don't have the same judgment that you do. So here, let's, let's start it already, right? Okay, so they're pulling down QAnon, conspiracy theory, oh my God, crazy, so on and so forth. Okay. Should you pull down the 9-11 truthers? Very big community of 9-11 truthers. I don't know how, much act, how, how active they are on Twitter, but QAnon is, you know, some sort of right conspiracy thing. Well, the 9-11 truther people, that is more left-leaning, but also some right-wing people conspiracy where they think Bush and Cheney were in on it and, you know, they did 9-11. What about that? And if Twitter does it, should YouTube do it? Should YouTube pull down every single video that advocates 9-11 conspiracy theories? Should they do it? Because that's the logic of this QAnon thing. It's such an extreme conspiracy, we can't even entertain it. We can't even allow anybody to have free speech and talk about it. That's what this is. Okay, so the 9-11 truther one is we're just getting warmed up here. What about the JFK conspiracy? That's a conspiracy that, according to some polls that I saw within the past few years, a majority of Americans think that JFK was not killed by one lone gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald. A majority of Americans. It is a conspiracy, though. It is technically a conspiracy. A conspiracy. So should they pull that down? People who talk about, should YouTube pull down every video of the JFK conspiracy stuff? If you say yes to QAnon, why not yes to this one? Oh, well, that conspiracy is different. But you already agreed in principle to, hey, maybe some conspiracies, they're so bad and so extreme up front that we got to pull them down. What are we going to do? And so the slippery slope is a real slippery slope. Guys, we've already seen it. Don't play stupid with me. For Christ's sake, don't play stupid with me. Reddit pulled down the Donald Trump Reddit and Chapo Trap House, bitch. So they're already doing the... And we knew this was going to happen. They're always going to go, oh, the right-wing ones, that is so extreme, so crazy, pull it down, and all the left-wingers go, yay, the right-wingers suck, yay. And then, then the right-wingers cry bloody murder, and they're not wrong to do so, but they cry bloody murder. So, oh, my God, everything's so biased. And so the establishment and the powers that be go, damn, we need a pound of flesh from the left now to make it look like we're nonpartisan. So who do they go after? Guys like Chapo Trap House. You know who's somewhere on that list, son? I'm on that list. Jimmy Dore's on that list. A lot of lefties are on that list. If you agree to let these people filter, censor, determine what's okay, determine what's not okay, you're saying, I am very comfortable with philosopher kings determining what should and should not be allowed to be said. Well, let me tell you something. They will continue to add to the list. They're going to continue to add to the list. And the best example, I always say this in these segments because it's true. Anybody who said in 2003, hey, you're wrong. Saddam Hussein was not connected to al-Qaeda. Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with 9-11. And Saddam Hussein, how about this one, doesn't even have weapons of mass destruction. If you said that in 2003, you're the conspiracy theorist. You're the crazy person. You would be punished. Mainstream media was saying the exact opposite thing, and they were dead wrong. By the way, you want to punish conspiracy theories? Should everybody who promoted Russiagate be pulled? 
There's a whole community of resistance people online that are still Russiagating. Rachel Maddow is still Russiagating. Hillary Clinton today was still Russiagating. Total conspiracy, complete bullshit. It's dangerous. You're saying the American president is a Manchurian candidate to Vladimir Putin's Russia. What if some borderline crazy person decides to take action and try to do physical harm against somebody in a position of power as a result of that? That's Russiagate. Should you pull down all the Russiagate accounts? Of course not. Of course not. If somebody does a threat of violence or doxes, yes, yes, you take action in that case specifically. To do a whole broad, okay, no, this is extreme, this is, I'm uncomfortable with this, I'm uncomfortable with that. Well, you open the door, and we're going down the wrong path. And everybody who's cheering now, just wait until somebody's in the position of power to determine who gets pulled down where you don't agree with their judgment at all. Because let me tell you something. Somebody who's a Steven Crowder fan, somebody who's a Ted Cruz fan, these are people who look at me and think I'm Satan incarnate. They look at me and say, I'm the one, oh, he's poisoning the... the you know, the minds of the youths and, and so on and so forth. What's offensive and what's unacceptable is largely subjective. There are very few things where we can kind of objectively agree, yeah, that makes sense, no direct threats of violence. But outside of that, what's offensive and what's unacceptable, it's such a broad, subjective thing. I don't believe that we should have philosopher kings. I don't believe that... Silicon Valley oligarch billionaires should determine what's acceptable and what's not acceptable in the discourse. I don't believe that. And I think you're a sucker and you're very short-sighted if you do believe that. Because this absolutely is going to come back to bite you in the ass. 100%. They could easily go, things I've said on this show in regards to Syria that have now been proven right, they would have looked at that and said, that's conspiracy. Conspiracy, you need to pull him down. That's unacceptable. 2016, the DNC rigging the election against Bernie. You were called, not only were you called a, a conspiracy theorist, you, it was argued that you're actually, you're maybe a Russian puppet. You're maybe funded by the Kremlin because you're talking about leaks that WikiLeaks, they said, got from Russia. So are you Putin's puppet? So now there's even an argument for you're doing election interference, so we got to pull you down. You tweeted about the WikiLeaks. we got to pull you down. What are you talking about? It's a conspiracy. It's from Russia. What are you doing? There's a reason why Noam Chomsky, one of the most prominent leftists of all time, most world-renowned living intellectual, there's a reason why Noam Chomsky always cared so deeply about free speech that he literally wrote the foreword to a book of somebody who he hated, some guy who was like a legit Holocaust denier. He argued for that person's right to free speech. Why? Because he knows what it's like when you go around saying the United States is the number one terrorist nation. He knows that those protections are vital because people would definitely come for him if they could. Everybody needs to wise up and realize the same thing. The left needs to take the mantle of free speech and argue for freedom of speech. And there's going to be nothing more annoying and upsetting and obnoxious when the same people who are arguing for this and they think this is great well, then turn around the second to target somebody who they disagree with. They go, oh, my God, my God, censorship! Censorship! It already happened. Facebook pulled down Copwatch, and they pulled down an anti-war outlet. And they made some BS argument about, we don't know about the funding, it's kind of questionable, or there might be, like, sock puppet accounts or some shit. Ridiculous argument. Copwatch, because they were exposing the wrongdoing of cops, and an anti-war outlet as well. 
I can object to that because I'm principled on this. But if you're somebody who would defend the pulling down of all the QAnon stuff and then say, no, 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 don't suppress me, you're kind of a hypocritical idiot and you're not paying close enough attention and you're not principled in how you think and you look really dumb. All right, final story of the day. We are all still, ooh, wait, I got the wrong thing here. Where is it? There we go. David Sirota has a new report about Joe Biden. Um, and this, is, this says everything about him, doesn't it? Joe Biden just explicitly promises Wall Street donors that he will not push any legislation to change corporate behavior. His campaign blasted this promise out to the National Press Corps and nobody even bothered to report it. So here's what it says. So Biden did an event that was headlined by John Gray, a top executive at the Blackstone Group, which is a private equity behemoth at the center of the climate, healthcare, housing, and pension crises. Blackstone executives had already donated $130,000 to Biden's campaign and $350,000 to a super PAC supporting him. Here's the relevant section reviewing what Biden said. Second question again for Mr. Gray, who noted that there are a bunch of business leaders on the line. What do you think is essential to get this economy rolling again? Quote, I come from the corporate state of America, and many of you incorporated here, said Mr. Biden. It used to be that corporate America had a sense of responsibility beyond just CEO salaries and shareholders. Corporate America has to change its ways. It's not going to require legislation I'm not proposing any. We've got to think about how we deal people back in. I'll repeat it. Corporate America has to change its ways. It's not going to require legislation. It's not going to require legislation. I'm not proposing any. So corporate America should willingly change their ways. You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of the debate in 2016, Bernie and Hillary, where Hillary said, I went to Wall Street and I told them to cut it out. So as you supported the deregulation of them, you also went there and said, don't do bad things, even though I'm going to let you do bad things legally. This is so depressing. It's so depressing. This is also like when uh, Biden famously said, nothing will fundamentally change to a, a room full of big money donors. Listen, I get it, everybody. I get it. I, in no way, shape, or form do I underestimate the evils of Donald Trump. It's crystal clear to me. I see it every day. I cover it every day. I think he's progressively getting worse and worse, too, by the way. Um, and I support whatever you, the individual listener of this show, whatever you're looking forward to doing in November, there are strong arguments to either vote Green Party, to sit out, or to vote for Biden. I think there are strong arguments for any of those options. But I want to be clear about this show. I will never not tell you the truth because I want a certain outcome. 
the truth has to come first. It has to. Because once we lose that, then we're just useless propagandists. And nobody would trust me, and nobody should trust me in a situation where I'm not putting the truth first. So I will continue to be incredibly critical of everybody who's in Washington, D.C. I'm going to continue to give you the truth of what's happening, no matter where the chips may fall. And the fact of the matter is, there are certain ways in which Biden's not going to change anything or do anything. He's not going to, you know, bring back some good Wall Street regulation. He's not going to do anything that would prevent the next giant crash. I don't trust his judgment when it comes to Wall Street at all. I don't trust his judgment when it comes to foreign policy at all. I think there might be a few little bright spots, like he might get right back in the Iran deal, which would be great. He might maybe ease tensions with Cuba. Like, actually, probably not that one, but there are little spots here where you go, okay, he might not be as bad, and Trump is really going way too far. I don't think Biden would have assassinated Soleimani. Um, But I'm always going to give you the truth. And the truth is, Biden's admitting up front, I'm not going to do anything in terms of laws to go after Wall Street because he wants that sweet, sweet cash. He wants that, those sweet, sweet donations. So just because we have an election coming up, just because I think one candidate is better than the other, doesn't mean I'm not going to give you the total truth about that candidate. And that's what we're seeing here. Total sellout to Wall Street will do nothing to substantively crack down on them. And don't take my word for it. Take his word for it. He says, it's not going to require legislation, and I'm not proposing any. So this is one issue where, you know, him and Trump are basically the same. Maybe you could argue Trump did way more to help them, and Biden won't do anything. You know, Trump's 2017 tax cut law was a wet dream of Wall Street and the wealthy. You know, um, also his massive deregulation that he's done time and time again, his gutting of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. I do think those are things that make Trump is probably worse than Biden would have been. I don't think Biden would have destroyed the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. I don't think he would have done tax cuts that were as bad as Trump's, which 83% went to the top 1%. Um, But again, he ain't going to do shit to change it in a positive direction. He'll just maybe hands-off approach, hey, you guys do whatever you want, which is arguably better than literally handing the keys of the Treasury over to corporate America, but it's still bad. It's still bad, which is why I say, you know, we have a far-right party and a center-right party, two corporate parties, and this is such a great example of it here. I mean, these words are devastating, and this should be a giant scandal, but of course it's not, and you're only going to get it from David Sirota and from me. Okay. We're done, y'all. I love you, baby. Everybody hang in there. It's been a very, it's been a tough 2020, but it's been a very tough week. We're all feeling it in regards to Michael Brooks. Um, But anyway, I really do love you guys, and I appreciate you. And everybody should tell your friends you love them, tell your family you love them, hug somebody a little closer, and um, really stop and smell the roses more often, because you never know what the hell is going to happen in this crazy world we live in. It's a very fragile situation, and I think everybody got a a giant wake-up call recently. So anyway, I love you guys very much, and I'll talk to you soon. Peace.